You can be seated. Thank you guys for joining us together in worship. My name is Josh, and I'll, I'll, right now I'll go ahead and release our children over to the side. If you are age three and four, you're going to go back with Miss Lindsay and Miss Olivia. And if you are ages five through seven, you see Mr. Ashton and Miss Renette. And eight, ages eight through ten can also make their way through that door as well. And if you're staying with us, let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Ephesians, to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, maybe you can find one somewhere there close by you and open up to the book of Ephesians. And we're so glad you're here. If you're visiting with us, thank you for coming. I know many of you perhaps are uh, from out of town. This time of year is where we start, the weather starts heating up and the traffic starts heating up a little bit. So we're, we're glad to have you here if you're visiting from out of town. Thank you for joining our family, our church family in worship. And we've been walking through a series. You're coming in on a good one. Uh, on spiritual warfare, where we are talking about the victory of God over a spiritual enemy, Satan, the devil. And we've been walking through this passage in Ephesians chapter 6, seeing how God has equipped His people with different pieces of spiritual armor. And we've walked through things like the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, And now, today, we're going to be looking at uh, the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. But what I want to do first, let's read the text together in its fullness, and then we'll read exactly where we're going to be covering as well. So this is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And then verses, let's look back at verse 16. It says, In all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation. Let's pray together. Lord, if you do not carry forth your word, we gather in vain. And if you do not open up the the hearts in this room, your word will bounce off and it will not penetrate. So Father, as your servant as your son, as one who has been made new in Christ. 
I boldly approach your throne and I beg you to make this sermon effective. Please, God, for your glory's sake and for our spiritual good, would you do something with this text? Would you do something in the lives of our body? Would you do something in the lives of our visitors here today? There are people here, Lord, who do not trust in you as Lord, and I pray that one, they would be welcomed by your people hospitably, and two, that they would be awakened to the truth of the gospel. And for those of us who are known by you, who are believers in this incredible Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that you would encourage us, admonish us, grow us, support us, sanctify us, and set us ablaze in South Walton and to the ends of the earth. Make these next few minutes worth something, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. So one Puritan pastor writes this. In old times, the shield was prized by a soldier above all other pieces of armor. He counted it a greater shame to lose his shield than to lose the battle. And therefore, he would not part with his shield even when he was under the very foot of the enemy. But he esteemed it an honor to die with his shield in his hand. One mother even said to her son upon leaving for battle, either you bring your shield home with you or be brought home lying upon it. She would rather have her son, rather have seen her son dead with his shield than alive without it. That quote says it all to me. The shield is the prized possession of every soldier. It is honor It is dignity. It is identity. See, the shield of a soldier represents the soldier. And for the Christian soldier, in a spiritual war, the shield of faith is no different. What we believe, brothers and sisters, says everything about who we are and how we live just as a soldier wouldn't dare leave the gates without his shield, so also must a Christian never put aside her faith. Notice that Paul says in verse 16, in all circumstances, in everything. Think about that. There, this, this, this one hit me so thick this week. There's never a time when you won't need your shield. Paul cannot think of even one occasion where you won't take your faith. He has no category for compartmentalized faith. And so let me start with a question for us this morning. I pray, I pray that our hearts are ready. I've been praying all week that our hearts are ready because I have to jump in right now. Does your faith go everywhere you go? Does what I believe impact everything that I do. You see, because faith is more than a badge you wear. It's more than a voter's card. Your faith is the 
filter through which you see the entire world. And if there is any place where I have cornered off my faith, well, that very corner is where the enemy lies waiting to devour me. Meanwhile, I want to recognize that we're all in different places. For some of us, the circumstances of life are bright. They're popping. Things are good right now. They're exciting. And that is something for which to be grateful. There's nothing wrong with saying, thank you, Lord, for the current circumstance that I'm in. For others of us, perhaps most of us, life is rather ordinary right now. We're in the slodge of everyday life. You got work tomorrow. You got bills to pay. And life is mundane. Life is ordinary. And yet others of us find our days not so bright, but rather bleak. And there are people here whether or not it's seen or unseen, uh, that are in a crisis. Surrounded by depression, guilt, sadness, loss, helplessness. And so, what is amazing about the shield of faith is that you take it into every single circumstance. Paul calls each one of us, whether your situation is bright, whether it is bleak, or whether it is somewhere in between, take up the shield of faith, brother. Take up the shield of faith, sister, and take it up in your current situation, in every situation. Now let's consider Paul's use of a shield. Why does he use this shield, a shield, as the weapon for faith? Well, let's think about what a shield is. A shield is a soldier's first line of defense. Now, a lot of us are in Avenger mode right now, and we're all thinking of Captain America, which is really cool that his shield boomerangs. That's cool, but, you know, that's not what, that's not what Paul is thinking about. He's thinking about a three-foot by five-foot shield that is basically like a small door in front of you. If you've seen some ancient war films, you, you've seen what I'm talking about. It's something that you can completely get behind. It is used as a defensive wall. It's made of wood, two layers of wood that are glued together, surrounded with a metal frame for ground impacts, and so that when you have to nail that shield into the ground, it stays together. The outer surface of the shield was four to six layers of cowhide. It was leather. They made this thick layer of leather, and these layers were soaked in water for hours. They were soaked in water so they would be drenched in water. Why? Well, because when a fiery arrow would strike the shield, the fire would be snuffed out by the leather's moisture. But you also had to do this right. If you didn't soak your shield in water, you were in danger. Because these fiery arrows, they're really intentionally designed. When you're thinking of an arrow right now, what are you thinking of? Extremely sharp piercing. You can go right through the whole thing. But that's not the kind of arrows that we have in mind. Fiery arrows actually have an intentional blunt edge. The goal is not to penetrate deeply, for that would defeat the fire's purpose, because what does every fire need? Oxygen. It can't go too deep. No, they wanted the arrow to strike just deeply enough so that the fire could still breathe and then overtake the entire shield. Not to hurt you in one spot, but to hurt the entire thing. Therefore, having your shield prepared in the right 
way makes all the difference. Or to say it another way, it is possible, Christian, that you have a shield, but it's the wrong one, and that it's ill-equipped for this spiritual battle. And so let me apply that to faith. Let me apply that to faith. The danger of our enemy, Satan, is not simply to cause no faith at all, but to cause the wrong kind of faith. Track with me. Spiritual warfare requires true faith. It requires real faith. It requires saving faith. And the Bible gives us a great definition of what saving faith is, but it also gives us a great definition of what saving faith isn't, of what faith is not. There is a kind of faith that is fraudulent, that is fake, that is counterfeit. And what Satan would love for us to do is to take the wrong shield, the unprepared shield, into battle and get consumed by his fiery darts. And so let me give you a few examples of what faith is not in order for us to understand what it is. You see this in your notes. Number one, counterfeit faith is a faith that is only intellectual. A faith that is only intellectual. So track with me. To truly believe something, it must enter the mind. That's just a fact of human nature. If you, have, if you want to believe something, it has to enter here. Nothing can penetrate the heart unless it first enters the mind. You can't embrace something until you understand it. But one very common and dangerous counterfeit faith, one wrong shield to take into the battle, is for truth to enter the mind, but never strike the heart. That is to have a faith that agrees, yeah, yes, yes, Jesus is Lord, yes, 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 Jesus is Lord. And you may even believe that He's alive. That the resurrection is true, but none of those truths dig in and take root. This is a faith that subscribes to the truth, but does not submit to the truth. And that first counterfeit one leads us to a second one that's really close by it, but dangerous. And another kind of counterfeit faith is, that, is one that is casual. Casual faith. What do I mean? This is when Someone says that they believe in Christ while still soothing their sins. This is a faith that loves Christ and the world. A faith that says, yes, I will lay my life down, but they still continue in sin. A sin-soothing faith is one that believes in Jesus but refuses to live like Him. A faith that may even attend church but refuse accountability. It is a faith that says obedience is important, even knows obedience is important, but lacks actual obedience. It is a faith that confidently defends a person's salvation while their choices do not reflect it. And here's what's scary. This is what James, the apostle James, the half-brother of Christ, calls the faith of demons. Insane. James 2, 18 and 19 says, Show me your faith apart from works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? Great. 
Even the demons believe that and they shudder. So faith must not stop with the words of your mouth. Faith must be demonstrated in the holiness of your life. True faith is a sin-killing submission to Christ. Therefore, a true believer is someone who hates their sin, repents of it, and walks in the power of godliness. A third counterfeit faith is one that is only circumstantial. Circumstantial. This is fair-weather faith. This is a faith that believes in the miracle worker, but not the suffering servant. So we first saw this kind of faith in Jesus' early days. John chapter 2, verse 23 says this. Listen to these words that John uses. He's so clear. Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem, many believed. There's a faith word. Many believed in His name when they saw the signs that He was doing. But Jesus, look at Jesus' response to this kind of faith. Jesus on His part did not entrust Himself to them because He knew all people. He Himself knew what was in man. So these people, what did they believe? They believed in Jesus the genie. They believed in Jesus the life improver. This is a faith that thrives with miracles and a show, but dies in trials. These are the seeds that fell upon the rock, who when they heard the word, rejoiced, uh, received it with joy. But these have no root, for they believe for a while, but in times of testing they fall away. You see, a circumstantial faith will crumble when your circumstances don't match your desires. And the reason that this counterfeit faith, number three, the reason that this third counterfeit faith is so dangerous is because it's ultimately about me. It's man-centered. It's a faith that rises or falls with the circumstances of our lives and therefore it's focused on me. It's a faith that is enslaved to making me happy in this world instead of giving God glory in this world. Look at what James chapter 1 says. And there are people in this room that I am so thankful for you because you live out this text in a way that I've never seen. James 1 says, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let me theologically draw that out for a second. God brings trials in our lives to test our faith. A circumstantial faith can't handle that. That's a God that's too small. But a, a, a believer who believes in a, a big God understands that He will bring hard things to us because He's shaping us into Himself. And because of that, James says, can you believe it? That we ought to rejoice. That is true faith. That is hard faith faith and it is impossible it's impossible faith but praise God that what is impossible with man is possible with God it is God's spirit that supplies a faith like this did you know that the reason you'll endure is because God promised you that you'll endure that's why your faith will last to the end because God is sustaining your faith right now right now 
He is drawing, He is digging, He is shaping to get you to the end where our faith, our shield will be laid down at His throne and we will see Him face to face. Have a big God that you worship, not a small one, that that goes away when bad things happen and gets close when good things happen. No, 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 He's always with His people in good and in bad. Don't have a circumstantial faith. Have saving faith. One less counterfeit faith that we see in the Scriptures, and there's more, surely, but is one that is only private. One that is only private. Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, For whoever is ashamed of Me and of My words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. This is a faith that lacks courage. This is a faith that John 12, 42 describes perfectly. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed. There's that faith word again. Many even of the authorities believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. For what? They loved the glory of man more than the glory of God. This is a faith in Jesus that still gives room to the fear of man's opinion. This is a faith that wants to please God as long as it doesn't displease man. But remember what Jesus said in John 16? The world is going to hate you. Yes, we should be salty in our evangelism. Yes, we should be winsome in our evangelism. But the way we live and what we believe... It's going to cause the world to not like us sometimes. It's going to cause the world to hate us sometimes. And if we're not careful, we will bow to the world's expectations and we will hide. Therefore, a faith that is private is a faith that freezes. And ultimately, Jesus says that a faith that freezes is not a faith at all. It's fake counterfeit and so my question for us this morning is do any of these describe us do any of them describe me do any of them describe you one is our faith entering our minds but not striking our hearts is anyone here today saying yes i intellectually believe the gospel but you're not letting it get here Number two, is our faith killing our sin or is it soothing it? Am I saying Christ is Lord with sins left untouched in my home or in my heart? Three, am I good with God as long as life is good? Or am I content in my Savior no matter what the day brings? And four, is our faith private? Does our faith stop short of courage? Because any of these, all of these faiths are insufficient. And if a lifetime of one of these counterfeit faiths is seen, it is not faith. They are the wrong shield. They are a worthless shield. They will not. Here's, and here's how we connect it to spiritual warfare. They will not extinguish the fiery darts of the enemy. In fact, they will welcome his fiery darts. 
Satan is content. He's happy with someone who agrees that Jesus is alive but doesn't live like it. Satan is content with a believer that says Christ is Lord but still bows down to sin. Satan is excited about the believer who gets crushed, who loses sight, who has no faith in hardship. And Satan is excited about a faith that never leaves the Christian's closet. And if we're not careful, he will launch his fiery darts from afar and our dried out leather shield will burn. You see that last one? That private one? Me. Me. I I don't... I don't want to have the wrong shield. Ever since like, I mean, long long time, long time. People people know about my faith. Outsider, people who aren't Christians know that I am one. I mean, since high school, uh, in in restaurants, as a teacher in my own neighborhood, people know I'm a Christian, but I'm plagued by cowardice. I hate it. I hate it. Thoughts. Thoughts of sharing the gospel. They come, but I don't pull the trigger. And it's often because I'm driven by man's glory in the moment rather than God's glory in eternity. What if People, what if we had heaven in mind when we knocked on our neighbor's doors? I'm not a shepherd in this way. I'm sorry. God, here's what I do know. Here's what I do know. God is doing heart surgery in my life in this area. Because it's not, you know, you being convicted about your faith isn't good enough. Did you know that? That's what I'm learning. If you're convicted and you don't act, that's almost worse. This is a, it's not a conviction, it's a warning that Paul makes. I've had to sit in this text and the God of the heavens is warning me about my faith. Take it up before it's too late. Paul's tone is too urgent. And so forgive us, forgive me, for the last month of being so in your face about the spiritual warfare. But it's real. It's real. I must be careful. We must be careful. And so, here's where I've had to land every day and multiple times every day this week. What's the solution? If these, all these counterfeit faiths are here, what's the solution? Instead of having a fake faith, we must have a saving faith. The only kind of faith. The good soil faith. It's a faith that can resist Satan and so what is it? 
Well, it's the opposite of everything I just described. Saving faith is a self-denying, obedience-producing, time-tested confidence in what Christ has done and promised. Saving faith is a self-denying, obedience-producing, time-tested confidence that we can stand our ground in what Christ has done and what He's promised. The reason my faith is weary, the reason my faith is weak is because I am not standing firm in what Christ has done. That's why my faith falters and flails. Hebrews 11, we read it, Michael led us in the response of reading this morning. What does it say? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. What is that word assurance talking about? You know, it's actually like a, um, it's like a note on a house. It's the guarantee going to happen. It's living as if everything Christ has done and everything Christ has promised is a guarantee. Faith is realizing and living as if everything that Christ has done and said is perfectly true and trustworthy. Therefore, if you have that kind of faith, it's a way of life. It's a way of life. Faith takes over who you are. It it owns every part of you. It walks into every meeting and shapes you in every trial. It meets you in every hour, praise God, and protects you in every single crisis. It is this kind of faith, and listen, this only this kind of faith that can snuff out the strategies of Satan. It is this kind of faith that becomes this impenetrable wall of refuge. It is this kind of wholehearted I love this. Something that's really hit me this week is Psalm 103. David, King David, is saying to himself, he says, he's he's preaching the the before cross gospel to himself, and he's saying, bless the Lord, O my soul. And what does he say next? All that is within me, bless his holy name. What is he saying? There's a part of me today that doesn't feel like praising God. There's a part of me here today that doesn't feel like being a Christian. And so what does he have to do in the morning? What does he have to encourage all of Israel to do? Bless the Lord, O my soul. Wake up, my soul, and praise His holy name. That is faith. Faith is a wholehearted, will-binding resignation, a surrender. I am yours. You own me. I am your possession. You bought me. In every circumstance. And when that is our way of life, what can the enemy do? What can the enemy do? There's so much, we got to move on. There's so much there. Let me join the shield of faith now with the, the helmet of salvation. They're connected and it's really cool. I'm excited about this. So this isn't the only time, so we see in verse 17, the first part, it says, Paul tells us to take up the helmet of salvation. This isn't the only time he uses this phrase, this helmet of salvation language. So turn with me, three books to the right in your Bible, to 1 Thessalonians. We need to go there and look at it. 1 Thessalonians, just a couple pages to the right. One of Paul's earliest letters. Go to chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 
verse 6. Five, six. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, check it, check it, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, whether, that is, whether we are alive or dead, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. So the context of this passage is hope in future promises. When you think of the helmet of salvation, here's what I want you to think of. Hope. This helps us color in Ephesians chapter 6. The helmet of salvation is about protecting your mind by actively waiting. Listen, this is big. Protecting your mind by actively waiting for something that has not yet happened. You tracking with me? See, the, the Thessalonians, that we just, this letter we just read, they're sad. They're really sad. They're grieving the loss of some of their brothers and sisters in the faith who have died. And they're scared. They're frightened. They're even fearful of their their own eternal future. And so Paul does what he always does. He teaches them first and encourages them second. He commands them to anticipate, to hope in the future coming of Christ. And so this teaches us something as believers. This teaches us something, that we need to be the best on the planet at looking around honestly about the tragedy of our world, okay? We have to be the best at seeing that this world, as it is right now, is one big ball of brokenness. And we are not immune to its difficulties. Like we've already considered, suffering is real. Trials are real. Our enemy still strikes. God reigns and we worship Him in His victory and yet evil still persists. And so, do Christians have an answer for that? Do Christians have an answer for this tension that we're in right now? Does the gospel of Jesus address the brokenness of the world? And the answer is yes. Absolutely the gospel addresses the current suffering on this planet. See, the good news of Jesus is based on the reality that our sin, human humanity, our sin brought horrible calamity to the world. That our sin brought two kinds of evil. One, natural evil. And two, moral evil. Our rebellion against God has introduced both a physical, a corrupt physical world and a corrupt human nature. We have hurricanes that kill and we have people that lie. We have tsunamis that drown and we have spouses who cheat. We have cancer that erodes and nations that slaughter. This world is flawed in two different kind of ways. 
and it is in desperate need of redemption. Therefore, God in His mercy has sent His Son Jesus to save us. He has come right now to save us from our sin and to sustain us in our suffering. He has come to rescue us from our rebellion and bear us up in our pain. But He has yet to completely finish the story. And this is where the hope of every Christian lies. God is not done yet. God is not done yet. Jesus has come and He will come again. The Gospel that we believe warrants both a present faith that looks back at the cross and a present hope that looks forward to Christ's return. You lose either one, you're not going to live the Christian life as God intends it. So Christians, we've already talked about faith for a little bit, we must be excellent. We must be the best at hoping. We must be the veterans, the varsity team of hope in this world. And so what do I mean by that? What is hope? Let me define it really quickly. Hope, simply speaking, is the eager, it's an important word, eager anticipation of God's future promises being fulfilled. Hope is eager anticipation of God's future promises being fulfilled. Hope is looking to the skies waiting for Christ to come back. Hope is fixing our eyes upon the risen Lord who sustains us in our pain, but promises that our pain will end. That is hope. Hope is that tear-filled rest that our Redeemer is not finished yet. Hope is that future foundation that breeds holiness in the present. And this hope, this guarantee of what lies ahead, is our defense against Satan's schemes. The best way, believer, that, that you can put on your helmet of salvation is to constantly live as if Christ is coming back. That is what it means to put on this helmet. To put on the helmet, which is the hope of our salvation. And so let me ask, let me jump onto the other side of the line here. If that is our call, what are, will be his schemes? What will be the schemes of Satan? How will he try to attack our hope in Christ's return? And let me just give you two ways among many. First, Satan will tempt God's people to despair. He will tempt us to despair. Despair is the opposite of hope. If hope is the eager anticipation of God's promises being fulfilled, despair is the fatalistic sorrow that God's promises are void. Hope cleaves to God's sovereignty. Despair cleaves to earthly fate. And there is a difference. Hope is the Christian's home amidst her heartache. Despair is the world's cage for heartache. Hope says things are not okay now, but they will be. Despair says things are not okay and they never will be. Hope casts the mind on things above. Despair chains the mind to things below. 
And so our enemy's primary tactic is for you to no longer trust, to no longer anticipate God's future promises. If Satan can get you to size up God's faithfulness for you according to what you're currently going through, he's winning. When, listen, when our perfectly good God brings hardship to our door, we must run to Him in grief. Yes. Please, the the Bible is so clear on lament. So thankful for that. That the Bible gives us places to go in our grief. We are to run to God in our pain to cry out to Him in our agony when we can't even handle the pain. But hope is always the last mile marker for the Christian. You may start in grief, but you will end in hope. The difference between an unbeliever's pain and the believer's pain is mine finishes with hope the most hopeless thing there can be is to, is to endure tragedy and not have Christ. And so we need to say and believe and understand in this mystery that God's goals in our trials are usually going to be unknown. We're not going to always know why things happen in our lives. Forever. Isn't that interesting? We're, I will die with certain things that happen in my life and I won't know why they happened. But I can know this. I can't know this with certainty. That one of God's goals for the trials in my life is for Him to be my only hope. I can know that. He will make Himself my only hope. And so, believers, will we let our trials sink us into despair? Or will they drive us to hope in what lies ahead for us at the coming of Christ? That's the first scheme. The second one, if Satan cannot get you to despair, he will tempt you to hope in this life, not the next. To hope in this life and not the next. This this tactic is not to doubt God's promises, but to hope in something less valuable. This is not so much about despair as it is about forgetfulness. See, Satan wants God's people to lose sight of Christ's return. He wants us to live as if it doesn't really matter whether or not Christ is coming back. That's That's a really easy spiritual health check. Weekly. Am I living as if Christ is actually coming back? Satan wants us to lose sight of his return and instead to hope in things in this life. Satan is happy with a church that theologically says that we hope in Christ's return but functionally lives as if we ignore it. You see, hope, there's a biblical foundation here, hope actually breeds a certain level of sobriety. This is interesting. In the Christian life, See, the Christian is always sober and joyful at the same time. The Christian is always poor in spirit and rejoicing at the same time. 1 Peter chapter 1, 13. 
commands us this. Preparing your, heart, your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that God will bring to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter is saying, be on alert and lift up your soul. Hope. I love that. He's saying that to suffering Christians. How much more do comfortable Christians need to hear that? We're comfortable. We're really comfortable. And we need to be reminded to be on alert. When someone has their hope set on Christ, they will be wide awake to the things that are going on around them. So we must watch our lives ever so closely. We must examine ourselves. Where is my hope set? Do I eagerly anticipate the things of this world or the things of heaven? Are we getting to the place where we are longing more for heaven than we are for earth? Where do I find rest? What settles me? What carries me through my day, my my week, my month? Is it eternity? Is it the promises of the good news of Jesus? Because Satan will convince us to put our hope in the things of this life. And the opposite of hope would be anxiety. So he will cause us to be anxious about our money, our relationships, our vacations, our retirement, and any other worldly comfort that can steal our hope. So the question I'm asking, the question we're asking is, have I caught myself there lately? Is my rest coming from somewhere other than the promises of Christ? Is my hope found in things below and not things above? We have to resist that. We have to resist that temptation. It is a temptation to look and, and plant everything about your identity here and not with Him. So we have to bridge that gap. We have to take what is true about us, what's been declared about us, and we have to live as if it's true. Lifestyle will match it. So if your hope is set on Christ, your life will look like it too. So we must resist Satan. And we need to be slow to count things in our lives as blessings when those blessings actually steal our hope away from Christ. The Christian life requires vigilance and it produces heavenly-minded joy and hope. And so if we were to join the shield of faith and the hope of salvation or the helmet of salvation, what would we say? How did faith and hope work together? Well, that same Puritan pastor put it like this. He said, faith cleaves to the promise as a true and faithful word and then hope lifts up the soul to wait for its performance. Let me see that again. Faith cleaves to the promise as a true and faithful word and then hope lifts up the soul to wait for that promise to be performed. I love that. I love that. Faith clings. Hope rejoices. Faith receives the truth. Hope orients one's comfort around it. Faith attaches us to the promise of Christ. Hope anticipates His promises fulfilled. Faith believes God is for our good. Hope patiently waits for His goodness to come. Therefore, until we see Christ face to face, Christians must take up the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. We must put on the Lord Jesus Christ our shield of faith and the hope of our salvation. That is my encouragement for us this week. That is where we go this afternoon. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
our shield of faith, and the hope of our salvation. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Ephesians 6. Thank you for giving us insight into this battle we're fighting. And I pray for the faith in this room. Pray for mine. That we would not stand before you on Judgment Day with a counterfeit faith. With a with a faith that said we believed and never actually obeyed. I pray that you would use your word as the means by which your spirit grants life in this room right now. It has to be you. It has to be spirit-supplied, enduring faith. And that is not possible on my own. I, I don't have the stamina, Lord. I just don't have the stamina to have the kind of faith you require. So will you gird me up for me? You command me to gird myself up, but I need you, I need you to do it for me. I need you to do it for us. Will you turn these last few minutes into reflection and examination that we can look honestly at where our faith is this morning. And for those who have no faith at all, that you would save. This gospel that Jesus rescues us from our sin and promises us an end to all pain, this gospel of redemption would be believed. Please, Lord, please do it. And secondly, give us, give us hope. Restore to us this hope, this promise that you've made that you are setting all things right. You are currently working redemption for yourself. And it will be final. It will be complete the moment we see your Son coming on the clouds. Oh, what an incredible thing when we get to see you face to face, Lord Jesus. We will put down our shield and we will take off our helmet because the battle will finally be over. So in the meantime, would you preserve us, God? Through your word, through prayer, through fellowship with one another, would you help us put on the whole armor of God every single hour? In Jesus' name, amen.